word of God, the book of Esther and chapter 4 this morning. And I, I want to begin with an illustration that I've used before here a number of times, but it kind of illustrates what I want to minister. And I believe this is going to be something that many of you here can identify with and hopefully provide some direction. Esther chapter 4, we're going to go in the word of God. There is a, uh, a story that has circulated for many years about when uh, policemen in London are getting ready to be brought into the field. They go through all their training, and then as part of their written exam, they are given a situation, and they are supposed to write down how they are to handle the situation. And so I, I went ahead and put it up so you can actually read along. It says this, it says, you are on patrol when an explosion occurs on the next street. Upon investigation, you find a large hole in an overturned van lying nearby. Inside the van, there's a strong smell of alcohol. Both occupants, a man and a woman, are injured. You know he and an unlicensed driver and his passenger is the wife of your inspector. A motorist stops to offer assistance, and you recognize him as a felon wanted for armed robbery. Suddenly, another man runs out of a nearby house shouting that his wife is expecting a baby and that the shock of the explosion is sent her into labor. At that moment, you hear the screams coming from a nearby canal. It appears that a passerby had been blown into the water and cannot swim. Write down in a few words what you would do. I want to talk to you about what do you do when it seems like you don't know what to do. When life hits you from so many different directions that you're there and you're wondering what to do. One officer wrote this, he said, remove uniform and mingle with crowd. <laughs> because that's how you feel. And so this morning's text is about a woman that had no easy answers. She was in a situation where it seemed like whatever direction she took was only going to make things worse. That there were so many circumstances that were going on um, in her life at that moment. It all came crashing down, if you will. Uh, and it was like, if I do this, this is going to happen. And if I do this, that's going to happen. I don't know what to do. And some tells me this morning that there are people, that is exactly how you feel. There are people, you are here today, perhaps the very first time you're in church. I'm glad that you're here. But I've just described where you are right now in your life. I want you to consider this with me in the context of why you and I are fasting. Why it matters, and believe God to help us. I want to preach a sermon called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. You and I feel like there's nowhere to go. Esther 4, verse 13. The Bible says, Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Now, this is in a letter. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. You and your father's house will perish. 
Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Between the rock and a hard place. Father, I pray this morning that the Holy Ghost will meet with us in these services. Men and women who right now feel trapped and do not know where to go will fall on their knees and humble themselves and pray and let you get involved in this situation. We ask this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. Between a rock and a hard place. Now, we know this Bible story. It's pretty well known. And it's one that has great meaning for you and I today. So let me give you the background. What has happened here is the Jews are at this time in exile. They were taken by the Babylonians. But over time, Babylon was conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. And it is at this time where we find this situation. A wicked man by the name of Haman, kind of an Old Testament Hitler, a man who hates Jews with a passion, has managed to get the ear of the king. And he has persuaded the king that the Jews are a threat to his kingdom and that the Jews should be slaughtered, that there should be a genocide of Jewish people. You think that the hatred for the Jews started in the 1930s. Uh, you need to know history. They hated the Jews and they wanted to have all of them killed. Um, and the Bible says that the king has given ear to this man um, and the king takes off his ring and gives Haman the authority to order this uh, genocide. What happens is there's a Jewish man named Mordecai who is in the king's court, and he discovers this plot, um, and as he discovers this plot, um, he knows he only has one way of intercepting uh, this before it happens, and that is that his niece uh, is a woman named Esther who happens to be the queen of the kingdom. The truth is she's one of many queens, uh, but she is the, one of the queens uh, of the king, the wife of the king. Um, and not only that, she is a Jewess, she is a Jewish girl, and uh, the king doesn't know that she's Jewish. He doesn't know it. This girl uh, uh, is a Cinderella story. Uh, she was an orphan, um, and uh, uh, the king, uh, having banished one of his wives, uh, went looking for one, held some sort of contest, uh, ordered up all the girls that he thought that might be desirable to come before him. And this little orphan girl is chosen, and she goes from a life of desperation to now living in the palace, uh, being in the palace. Uh, her uh, uncle Mordecai, who has raised her, uh, is allowed in the king's court. Um, and now the king, uh, or Mordecai, has come to Esther and said, Esther, you know what, dear? Uh, you're going to have to speak up. You're going to have to say something. This is coming down. They are about to kill our people, and you are the only one who may have access to the queen. And in verse 14, uh, he ramps up the pressure with the words, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise through the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will 
perish. And he says something to her. He's saying, Esther, if you don't speak up, we're all dead. If she goes to the king and, first of all, reveals that she's Jew, and not only that, in those days, a, a wife was not allowed to, a queen was not allowed to speak to the king without his permission. Some of you guys are like, really? That, you know, I did, that's, that's not a bad doctrine. But, uh, but you were not allowed, and it was actually punishable by death for a woman to simply barge in and speak her mind to the king. And so he basically says, if you don't do it, you're dead. But if you do it, you'd probably be dead too. There's no right answer. There's no easy way out. Esther is between the rock and the hard place. It is where there are no good options in life. That whatever step you take seems to be more dangerous. And when you read the Bible, you find that this happens from time to time. The Bible tells us the classic story of the Jews when they are pursued by the Egyptians and they're chased to the Red Sea. And there they are between the rock and the hard place. Uh, there's the Red Sea. They cannot get across it. It's 20 miles across. Uh, and here comes Pharaoh's army uh, raging to attack them. And there's just nowhere to go. They can't, they're, they're, they're being pushed into the water. They cannot go. And they're just stuck. There are no options. There, there's no easy answer. The Bible tells us in Psalms 142, David, when he's running from King Saul, he writes these words, in the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there's no one who acknowledged me. Refuge has failed me. The message translation says it this way, I'm up against it with no exit. I'm stuck. There's nowhere to go. He can't come to that point where, you know, I, I can't do this. This will happen. If I try, this will happen. I'm stuck. There's no exit. The Bible tells us about Paul when he went to Asia. He, he listened to his words when he describes going to Asia. He says, we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, for our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. He's being honest. He said, listen. If you think ministry is easy, if you think, oh, that, I, I, I wouldn't mind doing that. That doesn't sound too hard. Listen to the words of the apostle. He's saying, hey, you know what? We're, we didn't know what to do here. We came to the point where we were beyond measure. In other words, we are stretched beyond our capacity. We came to the point where death seemed like the best option. Moses, David, Paul. They've all been there. They've all felt surrounded. I think that's why we read the Psalms, church. We read the Psalms because it shares our joys and our sorrows, and guess what? It also shares our anxieties. Psalms 18, verse 4, the pangs of death surrounded me, and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. Psalms 22, which is actually a prophetic picture of the Lord Jesus. Listen to this one. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. In other words, there are no options. You ever felt surrounded? Do you feel surrounded this morning? Dogs have surrounded me. You know, when I thinking about that verse, I thought about a story that comes from the book White Fang. 
Some of you uh, uh, Jack London readers are familiar with this story. And uh, I reread the chapter uh, yesterday where it describes this, uh, this man who's uh, up north and he's in the middle of the wilderness. Not a good guy, but in the story, they, he becomes hunted by a pack of wolves. He loses his partners, his dogs are eaten, and he is all by himself. And this pack of wolves is after him. And so the only thing this man can do is light a fire. And by using that fire, he was able to hold the wolves at bay. He, at one point, he actually picked up coals and threw it on them. And the, 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 the wolves are associating him with the pain of the flame and everything else. And this man is a, a very, very, you know, he's a very good writer. And he just describes being, you're surrounded and there's a wolf pack. And you're all by yourself. And he has to keep this fire going in order to keep them at bay. And they're there and they're hungry. And he describes one night where every one of them is howling that, 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 that the wolves howl. And he's in the middle and the only thing separating him is this fire and the fire's starting to go out. He, there's nowhere to go, there's nowhere to run. You're surrounded. This is uh, the words, uh, the dogs have surrounded me. Can you imagine being in a place in life where it's like, I'm stuck. No answer. If I do this, it's going to blow up my face. If I do that, it's going to be worse. And here's Esther. I'm stuck. Point two. When in doubt, fast. Because this is Esther's response. You see, what you and I do matters. When you are feeling trapped, the worst thing you can do is lay down and die. The worst you can do is just simply surrender to your circumstance. Listen to her words. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. Esther does the only thing that Esther can do. You know what I can do? I can begin to pray and fast. And I submit to you this morning, church, this should be the default of the believer when you and I are in trouble. This should be the first thing we do, not the last thing we do. Our ability to deal with life ought to be, you know what, what am I going to do when I'm surrounded? What am I going to do when I'm trapped? Not, I'm going to try everything and then when that doesn't work, then I will fast. No, no, in her mind, you know what it's time to do? It's time to fast. Think for a minute about Jehoshaphat. The Bible says when he discovered he was surrounded, it says then some came and told Jehoshaphat saying, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. This is how we handled it. This was his approach to dealing with the circumstances of life, particularly the overwhelming circumstances of life. I'm going to fast. I'm going to lay hold of God and I'm going to begin to pray and seek God. I want to give you three reasons this morning why I believe Esther chose to fast and why I think fasting should be the default of the believer, particularly in times of trouble. Number one is that fasting shows dependence. We believe in fasting that we become stronger by becoming weaker. By not eating and praying, 
You say, well, Pastor Ruby, my, I, my body is going to uh, uh, suffer. Well, some of us won't suffer too much, you know. Uh, uh, as my, my good friend uh, talks about famine insurance, you know, the, you know, but this idea, well, how can I deal with life's problems if I don't feed my body? The believer be, believes this. When I begin to pray and fast, I actually become stronger. Let me say that again. When I pray and fast, I believe as a Christian who cares more about the inside than the outside, I actually become stronger. I don't become weaker. It is right here where things begin to take place inside of me. Fasting is absolutely an expression of humility. It is saying I am not playing, placing any confidence in the flesh. Fasting reminds us of how much we need God and that we are not trusting our own strength. May I suggest to you this morning uh, that in your own strength and ability, you have gotten yourself in this mess. Uh, you are never going to be able to get out of it in your own strength and ability. Amen. You and I are saved by the grace of God. We are delivered by his power. If you are blessed this morning, you are not blessed because you are wise or smart or capable or talented. You are blessed this morning by a wonderful, gracious, merciful God uh, who said, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to help you. And praying and fasting is reminding ourselves uh, of our desperate need for God. And somehow Esther didn't say, hey, I'm going to figure this out. I'm a smart girl. Look how much I've accomplished in my life. Uh, it was, oh, no, oh, God, only you can help. We are totally dependent on you. Number two, fasting is fighting back. Fasting was not passivity. Fasting is not a surrender to a circumstance. You and I are not Mahatma Gandhi. We are not, uh, you know, social justice warriors uh, who are having hunger strikes to get our way. Well, not at all. No, we believe that when we pray and fast, we are entering into a spiritual arena. We are not doing this to get people to feel sorry for us. In fact, Lord Jesus went as far as to say, when you fast, don't advertise your fasting so people can think how spiritual you are and, and feel sorry for you. Fasting is a method of employing the supernatural into our circumstances. Fasting is saying, you know what, when I fast and pray, I'm doing this because I'm contending for spiritual dominion to be brought to bear in my situation. 2 Corinthians 10, the apostle says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God. In other words, in the conflicts of life, you and I are not to approach them from a carnal way. We don't use carnal methods in battle. Okay, you don't walk around threatening to fist fight everybody. If you don't like someone, you don't say, well, you know, I'm going to use my, my gift of gossip and slander to hurt them. That's carnal. The Bible says the way you and I approach conflict is spiritual. We begin to pray. And how do you access those spiritual weapons? You access them when you begin to pray and fast. You begin to operate in a spiritual arena. Most of you know the story of where the Lord Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And when he comes down, there's a bit of a fight going on. That's what happens when you've been on the mountaintop. You come back to the valley and usually people are strapping it on. 
And he comes back and, and there's an argument and the argument is the, a father who's getting after some of his disciples because he has a demon-possessed son and the disciples tried to cast the demon out and it didn't work so the father's getting on them because my son's still demon-possessed and Jesus kind of steps into the middle of this conflict and all this is going on and uh, he pulls the man aside and begins to talk to him, and the man's ticked off, and he says, uh, I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't cast it out. Kind of a, a, a left-handed shot at the Lord Jesus. How many know sometimes you can take a shot without advertising the shot? And so then Jesus simply looks at this man, do you believe? All things are possible to those who believe. You know, a lot of times, you know, the belief for us is that you believe and that, that's good enough. Jesus says, what about you, sir? You're, you're ticked off at those men for not enough faith. What about you? But Jesus says it to him, and then the man lowers his eyes. He says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief and humility. And then Jesus prays, and that demon-possessed boy is delivered powerfully delivered the disciples who had just prayed for him and nothing had happened saw that and then they and then they pulled Jesus aside I mean this man had just gone after them challenged them made them feel this small that they didn't have any power and and now Jesus does it and so these guys are having some questions you know how, how come how come we we prayed nothing happened you prayed something happened listen to what Jesus said to him he said, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. What's he saying? He's saying that when you and I fast, we tap into a spiritual arena. It is right here we fight back. It is right here where you and I really deal with issues and problems. You might be surrounded by a pack of wolves this morning. And you're trying to figure out, uh, well, I'm going to take out the gray one first, you know. And I'm, you know, you're trying, you're, you're thinking about in a purely carnal approach how you're going to deal with your problems. And here the Bible says, no, no, this is really spiritual. How do I win? I begin to pray and fast and lay hold of God because there are some things that are not going to respond any other way. That I am strong when I begin to enter into this arena and I begin to pray and fast. Mark my words, a very strong Christian is not someone who walks around with a t-shirt three sizes too small that says powered by Christ, or I can do all things through Christ, and all that nonsense. Find out who has a regular lifestyle of prayer and fasting. Number three, I believe that Esther fasted because fasting is self-denial. I mean, let's call it what it is this morning. So I love to fast. Right. And, uh, you know. So let's think about Esther's conflict here. Esther has more to lose than anybody else in this whole scenario, don't you? After all, even Mordecai says, you're over there in the palace, girl. You're hiding in the palace. He knows her as an orphan. He knows her. I don't believe that Esther is one of these vain little girls with the vain stage mothers who are constantly entering their daughters in beauty contests. It wasn't her choice. The king ordered, and they went around and just simply picked girls and made them go. But Esther came from nowhere, 
Now she's living in a palace. She has a court. She has maidens that are there for every beck and call. She is given a portion of the palace to live in, and would, would, uh, he would bring her into his, whenever his bidding, he would bring her to him. And, and, and she's living in the lap of luxury. She is a poor, orphan Jewish girl in the kingdom of Persia, living in absolute luxury. And in the middle of getting her nails done, this letter comes, her uncle's standing outside in sackcloth and ashes, and she sends them to, go tell them not to do that. Nobody is allowed to dress like that in the, in the court of the king. And, and she's worried about him, and he writes this letter and sends it back up to her and says, girl, girlfriend, you're dead. Unless you speak up, you're dead. And all of a sudden, this lady who's living in the pinnacle it's looking at the end of everything. You know, she could have said, I'll just tell them I'm not Jewish. I'm just going to tell them I'm not a Jew. Kill them all. You know, she could, you know, she didn't do that, thank God. <laughs> Think about it. The very thing that God had supernaturally blessed her with, now to do his will, she has to jeopardize. I just said a mouthful. The very thing that God blessed her with, in order to be obedient to him, she now has to jeopardize. You know, sometimes we, we don't realize that. We all know that uh, Abraham, you know, waited until Isaac is born, and then as soon as Isaac gets old enough, Abraham has said, I want you to go and offer him up. We all know that story. The very thing he prayed for, God gave to him, and then God said, I want you now to sacrifice it, and we read this, so here's Esther, she's now the queen, and she has all this, um, and now she said, I want you to jeopardize it. I want you to go, uh, and with one roll of the dice, you're going to announce to the king that you're a Jew, which is a persecuted minority. Not only that, uh, you are going to go to the king, even when he's not calling you, you're going to do that. We already know this king. If you're a Bible reader, you know this king's got a short temper. I mean, his, his uh, uh, first wife, Vashti, simply said, I'm not going to pray around naked. I'm going to have a little bit of dignity, and I'm going to prance myself around in front of your friends. And he got rid of her. This is that king we're talking about. Now she's going to go and just come right into him. Are you serious? What do you do when I have to do something that is, my flesh doesn't want to do? What do I do when I got to do something that there's a part of me that doesn't want to do it? I fast, because when I fast, I practice saying no to my flesh. I mean, there are people here this morning, you're like, man, I'm, I'm ready for this fast. There are other people like, oh, man, you know what? I'm going to eat seven cheeseburgers and nine pepperoni pizzas today. And, oh, I hate fasting. Ah. Oh. It's 10 o'clock in the morning on Monday. Ah, you know. <laughs> I got a word for you. You might want to write this one down. Fasting is not supposed to be easy. If it's easy for you, then it's, 
I do know I told the Sunday school, by the way, I said, why don't you fast social media for the next three days? Just fast it. Some of you say, I'll give up. I won't eat food for three weeks if I can have my social media. But why don't you fast social media? Or video games. Fast dopamine. It's not supposed to be easy. One of the revelations of fasting, particularly when you fast three days, is you realize how strong your flesh really is. You realize that, that, that the hunger pains and, and all that, and you get moody and angry and everything else, and you know, you're upset all the time and all, all, all that stuff. What is that? That's your flesh crying out. The practice of saying no to my flesh is what in the end is going to save this girl. And she understands that I have to do this. I didn't get permission to say this, and so I don't know if I should. But somebody told me that the first time they were new convert and we fasted, they were a new convert, and they, the first three days fast, they said, I didn't eat anything. I just had milkshakes the whole time. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there, let me put up that quote. Go ahead. If you gain weight after three days of fasting, something is wrong. <laughs> There's something very, very healthy about being able to say no to your flesh, about that understanding that there's self-denial. Jesus fasted 40 days tempted by the devil and the bible says the devil tempted him three ways he tempted him by his appetite turn the stones into bread you're hungry you have appetites you have needs your physical body is demanding something of you and jesus wouldn't do it he said that you know a man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of god and uh, and jesus would not give in to this appeal to the flesh just gratify indulge just go with whatever your desire to do because fasting is teaches you self-denial no problem the devil takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple and says throw yourself down after all doesn't psalms 91 say that angels will be there catch you before you you hit the, the ground just throw yourself off and perform this little stunt for everybody and, 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 and see this scripture fulfilled. May I, may I remind you, the devil knows the Bible better than you know the Bible. And for that reason, he knows how to twist the Bible. Can you say Jehovah's Witness? <laughs> and the Bible says that uh, Jesus, again, refused to do that. This was an appeal to his pride. His appeal to his pride. A lot of hyper faith is nothing more than spiritual pride. He said, I'm not going to do that. And then finally we know he takes him up and he shows him the kingdoms of the world and says, all this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. Now, one, that's a lie. The devil doesn't have all the kingdoms of the world to give. But the second truth, which is quite powerful, is he's appealing to ambition. He appeals to that ambition inside of us that wants to have, that wants promotion and elevation and recognition. 
You know, you know, I got to be honest with you. The first time I read that verse, I thought, that's the stupidest thing in the world. I didn't know a whole lot, but I know that all power is given unto him. That the devil can't promote Jesus, after all, was in glory and came down. But it does show something about how the devil works. He really does think that give a man, dangle ambition and promotion in front of him, and many men will throw everything away for that. They will sacrifice their principles and their convictions for it. But Jesus would not go for it. Fasting is self-denial. Fasting is saying, I resolve I'm not going to do it. Think about what Esther says here. She says the words, if I perish, I perish. She knows the end game. The end game is either I'm going to die because God is going to judge me for having put me in this position and me not obeying him, or I'm going to die because I'm going to take a step of faith and they're going to say off with her head. If I perish, I perish. She understands the end game. To her, the issue wasn't survival. The issue was the will of God. And she says, how do I get to that point where I can do that? I fast. And having fasted, I have developed the character to learn to do things that my flesh doesn't want to do. I learned and developed the character to sacrifice my way and my will because I pray and fast. Let me close then. We'll talk finally about breakfast. Amen. Some of you have been over say, Pastor, I beat you to it. I've been thinking about that for a while. <laughs> you know, one of the questions that people ask when, when we have a three-day fast, I always ask the question, what are we doing after the fast? And they're already saying, I mean, we're here Sunday. It's Sunday at 12.15, and you're already thinking about where you're going to eat Wednesday night. You're already, well, I'll make the chicharrones, and you make the uh, chalupas, and I mean, and already got your menu. <laughs> Let's remember something. Fasting is only the beginning. We are not fasting for the sake of fasting. Esther just didn't call a fast because it's like, well, that's, that's what we do. We just fast. Esther fasted because there was something beyond the fast that had to be dealt with. Something that had to be addressed. So let me stop and ask this question. What challenge is in front of you right now? What is going on in your life right now? For Esther, we said, Esther, dear, what's, the, what's going on? Esther would have said, you know what's happening here? Is they're going to kill all my people? My husband doesn't know that I'm a Jew. Uh, if I go talk to him, he'll kill me. Uh, and, and, but if I don't go talk to him, God will kill me. And, you know, we knew what was in front of Esther. What's in front of you today? What situation specifically is going on in your life? Is it a family matter? Is it a marriage issue? Your children, your parents? Is it a sickness that's in front of you today that you don't know how to handle? Is it a financial crisis? Is it a relational breakdown? Perhaps it's a ministry issue. You're trying to get the mind of God and break through in some area of ministry and kingdom service. What's going on in your life? Because the story here is not just that Esther fasted, but what Esther did after she fasted. It's her ability to go from the fast forward. 
See, what we're going to do over the next few days is we're going to pray and for a lot of things. But one of the things that we're doing is we're praying about what we're going to do on Thursday. We're praying about what we're going to do after the fast. Are you with me, church? What step, what action do we have to take? What person do we need to talk to? What situation has to be addressed? What issue is God speaking to me about? And I am fasting towards something. Verse 16, I will fast likewise, and so I will go. In other words, Esther already knew what she needed to do. She needed to go speak to the king. She knew that. But she understood that it is in fasting I am coming to this point because I know what I must do. Is it possible this morning that you know what you must do? But to be able to do it, you got to fast. You have to take the action that is necessary. I was thinking about this and a couple of fasting stories in the Bible that, that I've been pondering and that I wanted to mention in this sermon. I'm going to be getting ready to finish right now. The first one is in Acts 13. You don't have to turn there. It's a place we always turn. If you're here when we plant churches, we always turn there. We're about the lands and the couple. The church in Antioch, the Bible says that they were praying and fasting and the Holy Spirit said, separate me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I'm going to send them to do. That it was... Praying and fasting generated a desire in that church to plant a worker. Remember what I'm saying. Praying and fasting doesn't exist just simply as some uh, little Buddhist discipline. We pray and fast for a reason. And the Bible says as they prayed and fasted, this generated in them the impulse to plant churches. And they decided this church that's having revival must now send some of our people out somewhere else to preach the gospel. That's why we do what we do in our fellowship. It comes from Acts 13, born of prayer and fasting. Then the other thing that's interesting is the Bible says that they took Paul and Barnabas and they prayed and fasted and sent them away. So the impulse to plant churches was born of prayer and fasting. And then after that, They've got this, these two brothers to send them, and guess what they did? They prayed and fasted again to send them out. You get a pattern there. That prayer and fasting doesn't exist in its own little vacuum. It serves a larger purpose. It always is meant to produce something. It is meant to energize and provide impetus, and human choice follows and says, this is what we're going to do. When we pray and fast collectively as a congregation, we are saying, God, what do you want us to do? And God, we will do it. There will be some sort of action taken out of this fast. And they did that. I'm going to leave you with one last story and we'll pray because this one could, I could not get away from this as I was praying for this service and for this fast. And I was thinking back, and you'll, you'll probably hear another sermon on this here soon, Judges 19 and 20. It's this story. You remember that story in the Bible where this man, his wife had left him for a few months. 
and she had gone back to her hometown and he went to, to get her and while he's there, you know, they kind of get delayed for a little while and so they finally decide to head back up to where they live about 70 miles away, but it was, was kind of late at night. So what ended up happening is they get stuck as the sun is going down and they're in a strange city. And uh, when they go into that city, um, they go to stay at this man's house in the middle of the night, just kind of like, it's almost like the story of Sodom, a group of homosexual men, the Bible says, find out that this strange man is in their city and they go to the house and demand that man. I'll tell you something about the homosexual spirit. It's always going after and recruiting somebody into their fold. That's why if you work around a bunch, oh, they're nice, they're friendly. Don't kid yourself. The same way you want to win them, they want to win you. And so they went to that house and they tried to get this man. This man, him and his wife had been having some problems. And very cruelly, he takes his wife and throws her out to these men. And these men abuse this woman until she's dead. What ends up happening is there's such an outrage in the entire nation. They go to the tribe of Benjamin. These guys were Benjamites. And they said, you need to turn over the guilty parties here. And we're going to judge these guys for this. And Benjamin, instead, they gathered around their homies and said, we're not going to tell you. And, and, and it ended up turning into a civil war. Why am I talking about this? Because the Bible says that the other 11 tribes rallied, raised up an army, to fight against the Benjamites in the Civil War. And they went, righteous cause and everything else, and they went, and when they went, they were defeated in battle. They lost, and they were confused, thinking, you know, I don't get it. These guys are protecting these deviants. We're sitting here in a holy cause, and yet we go to war, and they, we lost, I think 18,000 men died. We lost to these guys. But the very interesting thing, the Bible says they went back the next day and they were defeated again. And then they fasted. You know, when you're in the middle of a battle, you don't normally think men should fast, right? But here they are, surrounded by the wolves, so to speak. Nowhere to go. God, if we don't do this, if we walk away and allow this horrible sin to be uh, permitted, no. But we keep going into battle and losing. Maybe this morning, as I finish this sermon, that's how you feel. Maybe Benjamin isn't out there. Maybe Benjamin isn't here. Maybe there's a side of your own personality, your own life, that's as wicked as those Benjamites. In other words, you're dealing with sin in your own life. And you feel like, I don't understand, God. I want to have victory, and I keep losing. The Bible says they fasted. They laid, got before God, and they laid hold of God. The last thing you would think men of war would do in war. And God came down, and God helped them. And God visited them. And they went up, and they fought again, and this time... God helped them and God gave them the victory, profound victory. Because the issue, beloved, is that, listen, it is in fasting that things happen that produce victory and choices in people's lives. It is what gets us to where we want to be. It is what propels us, independent of anything else you and I do, 
Is there are people here this morning, you need victory in your life. You've got your own little Benjamins running, running around, and it seems like, you know what? I pray about this. I pray. I'm not winning. When you and I fast, even though we already know what we should do, there's power released. The issue this morning, as we prepare to pray and fast, is Thursday morning. The victory God wants to give us. I want you to bow your heads. Straight sermon about prayer and fasting. Maybe you came to this church service and you're kind of trying to make heads or tails of everything that I'm preaching on. Let me say this to you. You could pray and fast and still go to hell. Praying and fasting doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't even get you any closer to God. The gospel story is that we're sinners, every last one of us. It doesn't matter if you're a religious sinner. It doesn't matter if you believe in God or don't. It doesn't matter what religion you are. We're all sinners. We're all in the same boat, and that boat is sinking. The gospel is that Jesus Christ, God's son, lived a perfect, sinless life and then was taken by sinners and crucified on a cross. When he died, the innocent one died for all the guilty ones. That's me and you. His blood was perfect and it was shed on that cross. And that blood this morning has the power to cleanse sin. It has the power to wash people on the inside. The Bible says that the blood of Jesus has power to purge a guilty conscience. Maybe you're here today and you're not right with God and you're a sinner. I'm here to tell you that your sins can be forgiven. You can be washed away. I'm not asking you to join a church. I'm not asking you to pretend or act like you're a good person. I'm here to tell you that the blood of Jesus was shed for you. and Your sins can be forgiven. Over the many years that I've pastored, I see lots of people say, well, I'm going to go to church because I have problems. And when they come and talk to me, the first thing I tell them is, you know where it starts? It starts when you get right with God. That's where it always starts, when you come and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I need forgiveness. And I repent. I turn from my sin. And from now on, I want to follow Christ. Trust him as my Lord and Savior. While our heads are bowed, say, Pastor Ruby, that is where I'm at right now. I feel surrounded. I need to get my heart right with God. I need forgiveness. And while our heads are bowed, if you want prayer, I'm going to ask you to do something right now, just to slip up your hand. And by holding your hand up, you're saying, Pastor, would you pray for me? I want to give my life to Christ today. I want, to need, I want Jesus Christ to forgive my sin, and I want to follow him. If that's you, while our heads are bowed, just slip up your hand and hold it there just for a minute. Heads are bowed, and you say, I need prayer. I'm not right with God. Slip up your hand all around this building. Pray for me, Pastor. I'm not right with God. I need Jesus right now in my life. Amen. All around this building, heads are bowed. Christians are praying. Lift up your hand. Just put it up high where I can say, God bless you. Thank you. God bless this hand. Who else? With an uplifted hand, here's my hand. Pastor, would you pray for me? I need Jesus to come into my life. Slip up it up all around this building. Would you respond? Maybe you're backslidden. Maybe you walked with God at one time, but you went your own way, and God brought you here this morning. And his Holy Spirit's calling you back. You say, ah, Pastor, I need to get my heart right. Here's my hand. Lift it up all around this building. Pray for me. 
God bless you. Thank you. Who else? Hands have gone up. Are there others this morning? Lift up your hand all around this building. I want those that lifted your hand, if you'll just lift your head and look at me just for a minute. Lift your head and look at me. I want to pray for you. I want you to come. Brother, I want to pray for you. Come on. God's dealing with you. These are coming. Who else? Here's my hand. I need Jesus to come in my life. Would you pray for me? Lift up your hand all around this building while these are coming. Slip it up. God's dealing with you this morning. Thank God for the grace of God. God's here today. Anybody else? The Holy Spirit's dealing with you. We're going to stand right now. Let's all stand in this place.